This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. One of the fun things that comes up podcasting about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era are the stories that we might never hear of if not for enterprising researchers that find inspiration from places in their own neighborhood. And Aaron Stark is one such researcher. When he was attending Harvard Business School, he became intrigued by the American watch company of Waltham. Once a towering industrial factory along the Charles River, it is today apartments, offices, and restaurants. And it's been preserved... But the story of the company and the importance of watchmaking remains underappreciated, according to Aaron, who reached out to alert me to his new book, Disrupting Time, Industrial Combat, Espionage, and the Downfall of a Great American Company. This is a special episode, and Aaron will read a chapter of the book, setting the scene and titillating us with a story that takes place at the outset of the Gilded Age. Before we get started, here's a short word on Aaron. Obviously, watches interest him. He also has an impressive list of accomplishments. He earned a BSc in economics from West Point, and he taught there as an assistant professor of economics with a specialization in finance before taking his MBA from Harvard Business School with a focus on finance and business strategy. He's a veteran of the U.S. Army with two combat tours in Afghanistan where he piloted Apache helicopters, and he can add historian and author to that list now. Here's Aaron Stark discussing his book, Disrupting Time. In the summer of 1876, Philadelphia's Centennial Exhibition celebrated America's first 100 years. The exhibition represented the rapid advances of the world, but primarily America's industrial success and massive economic growth. While still a young country by most standards, America was establishing itself on the global stage. Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, which would debut at the Centennial, wrote about the exhibition. It is wonderful. You can have no idea of it until you see it. It grows upon one. It is so prodigious and so wonderful that it absolutely staggers one to realize what the word centennial exhibition means. Just think of having the products of all nations condensed into a few acres of buildings. Almost 10 million people would visit the centennial exhibition across its six months of operation. 
Walking through the grounds and buildings, one joined the sea of humanity assembled from all over the world. It was described as a, quote, journey around the world, giving an insight into the life and thought of all manner of men, and lifting the visitor above the narrow limits of his surroundings, so that his horizon stretched out to embrace the whole human race. Bigotry, conceit, and local pride vanished as the great panorama of the achievements of mankind, of all races and in all climes, passed before his eyes. End quote. The Centennial Exhibition displayed national progress, but the descriptions of visitors emphasized the clash of attitudes in America at a time that promoted nationalistic feelings and protectionism. It was not apparent that Americans were ready for the assortment of people who attended from all over the world. The same author of the previous passage also noted the, quote, stalwart Indian that stalks through the hall, the small but alert Japanese, the heathen Chinese in his almond eyes and long pigtails, his comical dress, and his ways that are dark and tricks that are vain, and the turban Turk, end quote. At the epicenter of the Centennial's 2,470 acreages lay the main building and machinery hall, which enclosed the central plaza that welcomed visitors to the World's Fair. The main building was impressive, being the largest enclosed space in the world at the time. Inside the main building, fountains fired gushes of water, and music occasionally filled the air. Sometimes the Centennial's organ broke through the cacophony of exhibitors and visitors. Everyone was universally amazed. On all sides were heard exclamations of wonder and delight. Few had imagined the exhibition either so extensive or so grand an affair, and all were delighted. Endless showcases, country areas, national flags and banners, and people from all over the world. The unceasing pandemonium, the musty stench of thousands of people crowding the hall, and the severe heat that soaked the glass-covered building in the summer sun. Across the plaza from the main building was Machinery Hall, a much smaller but equally impressive building housing much of the emerging technology of the era. To those visiting the Centennial, Machinery Hall was a temple of innovation and a palace of industry. The machines shown in the hall were symbolic of the advancement made by humankind over the previous decade. During the opening ceremonies, the visitors to the Centennial even bowed their heads in prayer to thank God for America's social and national prosperity and progress, for valuable discoveries and multiplied inventions, for labor-saving machinery relieving the toiling masses. The hall was constructed with glass, iron, and wood, standing 70 feet tall and extending over a quarter mile. At the center of the Palace of Industry was the 800-ton cordless steam engine that rose 45 feet tall. It symbolized the industrial horsepower that America provided to the burgeoning global economy. The two 44-inch cylinders served as the ventricles of this mechanical heart, producing 1,400 horsepower that supplied the lifeblood to the machines in the entire hall through a two-mile-long Venus network of shafts and belts. One visitor described the cordless engine as a sight to behold, a sight for a lifetime. Despite showcasing many physically large inventions, those with the most poignant effect in the years following were ones with more delicate intricacies and had a much smaller presence at the centennial. Alexander Graham Bell's first telephone debuted in the main building and could be experienced on each end of the hall. The German area displayed novel machines powered by a series of explosions where gas and air are mixed in such proportions as to give an explosive compound, demonstrating early examples of the combustion engine. In addition, the Centennial featured the monorail 
that could be ridden across the grounds. It also showcased the sewing machine and typewriter. Theophilus Grebe was one of the visitors who would leave the centennial having his entire imagination altered as the fair revealed the frighteningly novel advances made by American inventors. Grebe was a middle-aged Swiss man. He had arrived from Switzerland into Philadelphia in the spring of 1876. The watchmakers of the mountainous regions of Switzerland had sent him to the centennial exhibition to serve as a judge at the World's Fair while searching for reasons why Swiss watch sales had declined by almost 80% from 1872 to 1876, a sharp decrease for Switzerland's primary market. Grebe was a skilled watchmaker, having had spent much of his career working in Philadelphia for the jeweler Bailey Banks & Biddle, only recently moving back to his native Switzerland. He was an ideal choice for this seemingly innocuous mission of discovery. Grebe arrived before the opening celebrations on May 10th, there was one company that Grebe noticed that was almost certainly set up on time and operating on the opening day. This American company was organized and calculated, showing something so novel that Grebe struggled to describe the ingenuity. His concern was a machine displayed by the Waltham Watch Company, about the size of a large shoebox, operated by a young woman. The disturbing machine was Waltham's proprietary automatic screw-making machine. The nickel-plated machine with robot-like arms could produce a tiny screw every five seconds. This was so fast that it was not even worth calculating the efficiency compared to that of a skilled watchmaker in Switzerland. Though Grebe felt compelled to try, he took out his notepad and scribbled a note. Screw machine makes 17 screws a minute, 10,200 per day. This figure was significant because it was at least 8 to 10 times more efficient than anyone Grebe knew. This machine captured the imagination of correspondents and tourists alike. A San Francisco newspaper wrote, quote, It would be impossible to describe in detail the many operations of ingenious machines one can see in the making of these watches in Machinery Hall. Waltham's space is surrounded from morning till night to see the delicate yet swift workings of the machines, particularly that which cuts the screws. End quote. The device automatically fed a small piece of wire, and then began to form the screw from the wire, which was then cut. A tiny mechanical pincer reached over, grabbed the screw, slotted the head, finished it, and dropped it in a small bin for collection, all in five seconds. Even more shocking was that one person could operate 10 machines simultaneously. This system multiplied the potential output of a single worker from 1,000 to 80,000 screws in a single day. The screw machine worked so effectively that it would remain in use at Waltham until its final closure in 1954 and even longer at another company until 1981. The automatic screw making machine was not the only noteworthy aspect of Waltham's exhibit. The visitors also noticed the overwhelming presence of Waltham's women employees, 13 of the 18 total workers at the exhibit. Women's participation in the labor force was something of a debut at the exhibition which, in addition to the machinery, the women were also blessed during the opening prayer. We pray thy benediction, especially on the women of America, who for the first time in the history of our race take so conspicuous a place in our national celebration. One writer visiting the exhibition noted the presence of the women working the Waltham exhibit as if they were meant to be decorative flourishes. While the writer only chose to comment on three exhibits from Machinery Hall, 
He noted that Waltham, quote, has its machinery and its pretty girls at work, making every part of a watch and keeping jealous wives on the watch as their husbands suddenly become interested in the wonderful mechanical manipulation of that delicate machinery in those deft fingers. This alone is worth going a hundred miles to see, end quote. The capabilities and appearance of the Waltham exhibit were no accident. While Machinery Hall was a temple devoted to mechanical ingenuity, for Waltham, it was an opportunity to show the world the superiority of its pocket watches and production methods. It allowed the company to demonstrate to competitors that it could produce enough watches to dominate the global watch market through quality mass production. That was the goal of treasurer Royal E. Robbins, who served as Waltham's chief executive and principal owner. Some viewed displaying Waltham's proprietary machines in operation at the Centennial as a risk. Competition in the American watch industry was fierce. The Centennial exhibition offered Waltham the chance to demonstrate its superiority like an advancing army parading through the streets of captured watch markets. Robbins had convinced investors that there could be no greater discouragement to competitors than by the free exhibition of the factory itself and of all it contains. He was most concerned about the American competition, which had become numerous and taxing in the years leading up to the centennial. Discouraging further American competition was his primary goal. In the end, the company's shareholders were complicit in approving his plan to display and operate the machines in front of millions of visitors. Many investors did not believe this was wise, but the shareholders trusted Robbins. He was a well-respected businessman who had served on the board of directors for companies like the Union Pacific Railroad, acting alongside Andrew Carnegie and George Pullman. Additionally, Robbins' careful selection of machines ensured not everything would be on display. The Waltham exhibit was deliberately planned to demonstrate the production of a few select pieces and parts of the watch. The purpose was a calculated demonstration of Waltham's dominance over its American competitors and the irrelevance of the handmade Swiss watch. Waltham was cautious to ensure its trade secrets would not be given away. It had no interest in the free sharing of ideas nor the promotion of competitors' advances. The exhibit served its purpose. What Gribby saw was enough to call into question the Swiss watch industry's future existence. By 1876, watchmaking was a national industry for Switzerland a source of pride and an exhibition of Swiss skill. As Waltham's machines produced precision wheels, pinions, and screws for a mechanical watch, which were usually produced by an artisan in a home in Switzerland, one American newspaper gloated, the old world observers like Gribby gaze in astonishment and apparently admit that their occupation is going, if not gone. There was nothing the Swiss watchmakers could do that would match Waltham's automatic screw machines not to mention the rest of the company's capabilities. After just a few days of observing the machines, Gribby wrote, I have been examining, as an expert on the jury, the products and tools of the Waltham Watch Company of Massachusetts, and I must admit that I was filled with admiration for their watches of various types and quality, and for the splendid machines and tools that this factory exhibited. By some measures, Watches were Switzerland's most important export industry, and America was the top consumer. One Swiss leader referred to America as Switzerland's milk cow. 1873 would prove to be a critical year for the Swiss watch industry, marking the beginning of the Panic of 1873, which turned into a global depression, the worst of which struck from 1873 to 1879. Exports of Swiss watches to America suddenly dropped from 366,000 in 1872 
to 75,000 by 1876. The Swiss were alarmed to see their U.S. exports fall, but the panic provided a facade for an underlying shift in the watch industry that was taking place simultaneously. While the Swiss focused on the panic of 1873 as a central cause of declining exports, Waltham was advancing and growing. During this period and leading up to it, Waltham was earning an untarnished reputation. The official history of the centennial noted, quote, the Waltham watches have long been regarded as the best of American manufacture, and the universal testimony of all who have used them is that they are unexcelled by any in the world. A prominent Swiss watchmaker, upon seeing Waltham's exhibit, confessed, quote, I personally have doubted that competition, but now I have seen. I have felt it, and am terrified by the danger to which our industry is exposed, end quote. It had finally set in. It was not the panic of 1873 that had caused Switzerland's milk cow to run dry, but rather a quickly growing American industry that had unequivocally transformed the existing market order. David would observe, quote, business in America is rock bottom as far as concerns Swiss watches. They do not want to see them. They do not want to talk about them. And everyone is undercutting his neighbor to get rid of any stock he has without success, end quote. In June 1876, Gribby wrote to his fellow watchmakers in Switzerland, We have been left behind. As news arrived back in Switzerland describing the watchmaker's situation at the Centennial Exhibition, the Swiss Watchmakers Professional Society decided to send an additional expert to join Gribby. The Intercantonal Society of Jura Industries, a newly formed trade association for watchmakers that represented their collective interests, selected Jacques David. David and Gribi had specific instructions from the society. Quote, make a serious and detailed study of the organization, tools, financial situation, and in general, any other aspects of American watch factories. End quote. The young Jacques David was an early advocate of using machines to produce watches and served as an engineer, making him a natural and convenient choice. After a 10-day voyage, David arrived in New York aboard the Amerike, on August 23, 1876, and proceeded on to Philadelphia, almost exactly halfway through the Centennial Exhibition's run. With his arrival, David and Grebe embarked on their mission, one that would be essential to the future survival of their industry in the Swiss national economy. These two unsuspecting watchmakers were about to become industrial spies, playing a critical part in the transformation of Swiss watchmaking, one that would change the history of the global watch industry forever. Disrupting Time tells the story of two Swiss spies, Theophilus Grebe and Jacques David, who in 1876 were given a charge by the Society of Jura Industries to make a, quote, detailed study of American watch factories. This was the direct result of the 1876 Centennial Exhibition, which was a World's Fair ongoing in Philadelphia at the time. The Waltham Watch Company had this novel assembly line exhibit uh, that really scared the Swiss watchmakers into action. These two Swiss spies conducted a remarkably well-executed espionage campaign on American companies and documented it in this 130-page report. 
This report would remain mostly secret until 1992 when a facsimile copy was released. And since then, Jacques David primarily uh, has been given much of the credit for the Swiss watch transformation and industrialization of the Swiss watch industry post-1876. The book begins by detailing the rise of their main target, the Waltham Watch Company, who was one of the most technologically advanced companies of the era. And given the role of watches in society at the time, we might even consider it the tech company of the era. The book then covers the resulting strategy and consequences for Waltham and the Swiss over the next 25 years as the, quote, industrial combat plays out between these two industries. I say industrial combat because that is the term the Swiss used to describe what was going on at the time. On one side, we have this quickly transforming Swiss watch industry who is moving from artisanal cottage production towards mechanized factories. And on the other side, a powerful but arrogant American industry that had invented the mechanized production of watches and were considered the market leader. The resulting battle would put Waltham on a trajectory from which it would never emerge by 1900, while also leading to the rise of the industrialized Swiss watch industry. It is safe to say that if these events in 1876 never happened, we would likely know little of Swiss watches today. I came across this story while in graduate school. I had read this report that David had written in early 1877 upon returning from America. As I began to read the report in more detail, I started to realize that it wasn't just an interesting report on American companies, but rather something that was likely the result of espionage. In his report, David talks about getting the information from people in the factories. Uh, he says their situation could be seriously compromised if the report became public. He also expressed the ardent need to keep it confidential. And outside of this, his 130-page report was a remarkable account of Gilded Age factories and their operations. Uh, what caught my attention most was the fact that I never read anything about uh, David in the most often cited histories of the watch industry. It was only after his report was publicly released in 1992 that he begins receiving much of the credit for the Swiss watch industrialization uh, post-1876. But it took 125 years for him or his work to rise to prominence. As it turned out, his report was kept confidential, as he wished. And from my research of Waltham's writing, it appears that Waltham probably never figured it out either. Once David's report is published, we begin seeing scholars reference his report for its immense detail. But you will not find any mention of David as a spy in any of the prominent histories of the watch industry. In fact, he is left out of many of the histories of the watch industry. And once his report becomes known, it's always a perfunctory mention of David acquiring information uh, on behalf of the Swiss. Uh, in fact, while I was writing the book uh, and broached this subject with a few people knowledgeable of David's report, uh, they actually laughed it off uh, at, the, at my theory uh, and said that Waltham gave this information to David, um, but this was truly at odds with the subsequent evidence I found. The big breakthrough came with a letter David writes in September 1876 in the midst of his three months in America. David begins to say all the quiet parts out loud in this letter while he thinks he's writing to a close friend. Once you read David's letter, there's no doubt about it that he, what he and Grievy were doing, uh, we would consider espionage by modern standards. 
As an important point of context, industrial espionage was pretty common back in this era, and the term doesn't even come into usage in documents until around World War I. So if you were to go back and ask Davy or Greeby about industrial espionage, uh, they would have no idea what you were talking about. But back to David's letter. What we see in David's letter are all the classic traits associated with the modern definition of industrial espionage. He actually says, quote, I sped through quickly and incognito, and I saw the poor arrangements that I already knew about. He continues in the letter. I did not really have time to have a good look around, nor to ask questions, but we have inside sources and we shall soon have the information we want. In the course of my research, I went to the archives of Harvard Business School, where I was uh, attending at the time, uh, which hold Waltham's old records. I compared their financial reports from 1876, the year of David's visit, to what he actually cites in his report, uh, which are his estimates of Waltham's profit and loss statement, its dividend schedules, its salary scales. And it turns out David is extremely close. Uh, he's not exact, uh, but he's extremely close. And you begin to see this fidelity of information that David's able to acquire uh, primarily from these inside sources. And he gets an unusual amount of uh, data from Waltham uh, that is unparalleled at any other American watch company. So I hope you will check out Disrupting Time. The book lays out all of this, uh, the story of espionage, and then it really, the second half of the book, goes into this um, interplay of industrial combat between Waltham and the Swiss and the strategic choices they make that set them on completely different uh, trajectories, and then finally the consequences that result from uh, both what the information David acquired and then what the Swiss are able to do with it and how it uh, forces Waltham to make choices uh, that ultimately result in their demise. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.